to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and I'm joined again this week by one of my favorite humans, Marcy Elvis Walker, as we continue to celebrate Black History Month by honoring and remembering Black women who passed down wonderful recipes and in doing so fed our souls. In this episode, we're joined by two additional guests, Patricia Taylor and Tasha Hunter. We dive in deeper and discuss the origins of distorted ideas and images of Black women versus their actual roles in our history. My guests share their thoughts on the movie The Help, and we dive into the stories of the real-life Black women to be celebrated, from Rebecca West to Nancy Green to Georgia Gilmore. Unfortunately, in this episode, we did have some technical issues, so about a third of the way through, you'll notice that we lose Patricia due to connection issues. As you'll hear, the second part of the conversation is again just me and Marcy. But with that said, be sure to stay tuned after our conversation ends. Patricia comes back on to share about the course she's helping to lead with at Be The Bridge. As always, all the links we mentioned for registrations, recipes, articles, and where to connect with my guests can be found at the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com. Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast, ladies. I'm so thrilled that you guys are all three here today. I shared with you guys I'm not used to moderating like three guests, but I can do this and you guys are going to give me grace and so is so is the audience. I also want to say before we get started that it's not lost on me that I'm a white woman in this conversation with you three ladies that are sharing your voices and the stories of your ancestors. And I just want to tell you that I'm very grateful to be in the space with you guys and I'm not, it's not lost on me. Just the impact for you guys letting me be here with you in the space to moderate and share. So thank you guys for that. Well, I'm just glad that you were willing um, because yeah. I know, you know, when I was, I went from zero to a hundred with this idea <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, wait, I don't know if she's even with me. And um, I was just so excited that you immediately bought the book and you saw why I was so excited about it. And you and I've talked so much about women. So it was really great to have a reason, the image of women in, in our culture. And so it was really great to have Black History Month be the central core of the message. Right. This podcast is to share women's stories and voices. And I can't think of anything better than to share the voices of women that didn't have a chance to share them during that time and to highlight them that were minimized and overlooked and not given the attention they need. So Marcy, I'm always on board with anything you want to do and celebrating women, Black women this month. I'm just grateful to be part of that. So before we dive into talking about that, let's just introduce everybody that's here today. Marcy, my listeners have to know who you are, but give us a quick who you are, and then we'll go to Patricia and then Tasha. Um, Marcy Alvis Walker. I'm the person behind Black Coffee White Friends, and I also do Mockingbird History Lessons, and I'm here in um, Chicago now, just recently moved. Patricia, you want to give it, Patricia, you've been on the podcast, people should know who you are too, but go ahead and give us, reintroduce yourself. Absolutely. My name is Patricia Taylor, and I am in Georgia (laughs) from California. So if you're wondering why I don't have an accent, (laughs) that's why. Um, But I have a page um, under my name, Patricia A. Taylor, also known as Some Thoughts from Your Black Friend, uh, where I discuss um, issues of racial justice. I'm also the BIPOC Black Indigenous People of Color educator with the organization Be The Bridge. And I co-host a fabulous podcast. We all love podcasts around here, I hope, um, with three phenomenal women called Upside Down Podcast, where we have unscripted conversations where justice, culture, and God's upside down kingdom meets. And so that's just a little bit about what I do. And I'm really, really happy to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. And we'll link up your podcast and also the conversation that we, you and I had a few months ago where you share your story and how you got started with your blog and kind of coming out and using the voice that God has called you to use. So I'm glad that you're you're joining in this conversation today. And then Tasha, you have not been on the podcast yet, but you're my next guest for when we're done with this series. So I just am thankful that you're, that you're coming to the table to just share 
who you are and your expertise in this. So you want to introduce yourself, Tasha? Yeah, so I am Tasha Hunter. I'm a mental health therapist. I specialize in treating adults with a history of childhood trauma. I have a book called What Children Remember. It's my memoir. And I also have a podcast coming out in March called When We Speak. Yes, so it's you have a lot of exciting things going on, Tasha. And we'll link up, obviously, your book. And then we'll be promoting your podcast when it starts soon because you are also sharing women's stories in your podcast. I'm just, I'm excited for you and cheering you on for that. So again, appreciate all of you being here today. So last week, Marcy and I just kind of dove into the topic, talked about the book Jemima Code, what it's about, why it's important to start breaking down these stereotypes and restoring Black women and celebrating who they really were. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper in that today. We're going to start out, Marcy and I also already talked about that Aunt Jemima image, but we're going to talk again about that just a little bit, could give us a springboard to dive into some deeper deeper topics with that. So that Aunt Jemima image, we all know it, we've all seen it, and it was really created by by white people and upheld white supremacy. Who does somebody want to just talk a little bit about that, the the thoughts on it, the the reason for it and how it was created as a product of white supremacy? Well, well, I'll I'll do that. Well, the reason that they created it, and I think this is something that people don't recognize, is that um, they were trying to, there, there were two brothers who had a mill company, a flour mill company, and they wanted to sell their flour. And so they came up with a pancake recipe and they thought, who better to sell these pancakes than a black slave woman? And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind is that it's the comfort that we represented. So as you and I talked about last time, I said, you know, when people say that, you know, black people are unclean or or the slaves, you know, Thomas Jefferson really didn't love having slaves. He was surrounded by black people when he died because that's where he was most comfortable. That's where he went for comfort. When his wife died, he went to Sally Hem. So, you know, the image of a black woman being the bosom of comfort and home and hearth is what they capitalized on for decades. We're not talking about they did it and then, you know, there was the reconstruction phase and they phased it out and Martin Luther King marched and it was just poof, gone, Aunt Jemima away. No, they made memorabilia of this mammy character. They longed for it as much as people could long for the lost cause. It was an image that they wanted to keep for their own comfort. And in doing so, made it so that Black women could only work in domestic jobs. So that's really where the whole picture of it comes. And that's the only role that we were playing in movies. You have these beautiful actresses back in the day and they would make them look dowdy because they wanted them a role of comfort, but not the role of the siren, not the role of the love interest, of course. Well, we've talked about that, like with Gone with the Wind, with Hattie McDonald. I mean, it's like, and she won an Oscar for that, but playing this very stereotypical mammy figure. And it was a stereotype. And at least from what I have read, and you guys can correct me, but it it was a comfort, but also a comfort from white people that like to keep these women in their place, like, oh, they're just happy and content and they're doing, and that made them Feel good. So way after slavery, that was an image that white people continued to hold on to. Patricia, do you have thoughts on that or how that thoughts on that image that you've seen your whole life? Well, what I actually wanted to uh, mention was what you and Marcy discussed about it last week. And when Marcy mentioned the tension that she felt with the call for that image to be taken down and and to be erased now, but to make sure that it doesn't lead to further erasure of Black women. And and that's, it's either one or the other. It's either here you are and you can be out front as long as you are the caricature of what we want you to be, or we're going to get rid of you. And it seems like there's no in-between, there's no way that... There is an in-between, but you have to be willing to actually have honor and dignity and give that to these women to say, this caricature of this person was wrong, but this person still matters. And Mm -hmm. the legacy of this individual should not be erased just because we made a a horrible mistake to profit off of of the stereotype. Yeah, that's so good. And I think that's what white people do is, okay, fine, we'll just get rid of it. Or we'll stick her on a $20 bill and that makes you happy, right? So it's like, yes, these quick fixes or band-aids are not the answer. Like examining, learning these stories and history 
and acknowledging these women and their part is. Tasha, do you have feelings on that, that image or seeing that growing up or even now? Yeah, just hearing you guys talk about it, you know, I, I was thinking about just before, you know, it's been really comfortable to have us portrayed as to continue even now in the 21st century to tell the story of the slave, the servant, the caretaker, as it relates to Black women. And we've not been allowed to be sexual or sensual or to be smart, to be creative, uh, to be hard workers, to to own our bodies uh, and our minds. And, and, and then for some reason, as you guys were talking, I thought for anybody that's not aware of of Black history. And as we speak about the caricature, caricature I can't even say the word. <laughs> caricature. <laughs> of, of Black women, then all you have to do is look at present day movies. I know we're going to talk about The Help, but you, which is a multi-million dollar, you, you know, it made a lot of money, won a lot of awards. But I even just thought about the image of, and this isn't a woman, but but Tyler Perry's movie. Yeah. And, and, and the shape and just the ridiculousness mm. of no shade to anybody that, that enjoys that, but that makes a lot of money and anything else has just not been allowed very much in our history. Yeah, yeah that's such a good point. And during that time when, and even like we'll, we'll dive in pretty quick, quickly to the help, but the roles of women in these, a black women in the movies, black women were lawyers and doc, like all of these things during this time, even though primarily women could get the role, the role of the housewife or the cook, but they were so much more and sticking them in this little box is just, I think again, whitewashing history like we've done and that we continue to do. So with what you just brought up, Tasha, the help, let's talk about that movie. And there's a lot to talk about here. So admittedly, as a white woman, when that movie came out, I was not as educated as I am now. I remember watching it. Oh, that was great. My mom still says, oh, that movie's just great. Over the last year, I've read so much more. The article that you sent, Marcy, by Roxanne Gay, we'll link that up because it's powerful, but that's what I want to talk about. And when I was looking a little bit more, USA Today even had an article this summer that The Help was trending as a number one movie on Netflix this summer in the height of the George Floyd protests. <laughs> So let's talk about that movie a little bit. Patricia, do you want to start us out? <laughs> sure. I will Wherever you want to go with it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I'll start out by saying I'm not shocked <laughs> that yeah. that was the movie. I was disappointed, but not yeah. shocked because even in this quest to learn more and this desire to say, I want to be a good ally or accomplice or whatever you want to term it, it's still centering yourself, you know? Am I going to go to a movie that has all, am I going to start with a movie like When They See Us or 13th that's going to challenge me? Right. <laughs> or am I going to go to the feel-good movie where, you know, like I can be that that white woman that helps too. Um, so for me though, the movie itself it didn't it didn't click as something that was negative until later because that's so much of what we see. Like that's the norm. I remember when that movie came out specifically. It was 2011 and I was pregnant at the time, I actually didn't see it right away because I knew that there was a theme of miscarriage and it was just too sensitive. Like I didn't want to watch anything that had to do with that while I was pregnant. So I actually didn't watch it until maybe a year or two later. And and it did, it had, you know, the feel good, you know, moments and, and you know, the, when Bryce Dallas Howard's character, you know, really welcomes, you know, <laughs> um, uh, her her help to be like a real part of the family. And, and, it, and you know, when Viola Davis is like, I'm done and I'm walking out and you know like they, they have those moments so it's easy to get caught up in in this fantasy world of sw the swooping in white heroine who's like here i am i'm gonna help you get your voices heard and look at my sacrifice my man left me and you know i'm really for you and, and i'm also gonna go chase my own dream it, it's easy, you know, for, for me as a black woman, it was not something that I immediately, I admit, I did not immediately say, ah, this is just not okay. But there was something underneath this that I, that I was like, this, the problem is that people take that as reality. People take that as truth. You know, people don't differentiate the fact that that is a fictional story. And I, as preparing for this as well, came across a, an article in which Viola Davis said that she regrets making the help. Yeah. And yeah. it was not because she had a 
poor experience and, you know, the cast or directors or her co-stars, but it's because it was the the plot, which largely centered the white characters, you know, and, right. and even, you know, some of these same actors and actresses came out and said, no, 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 don't recommend this movie, you know, when it was number one trending in June and they, and they did list other movies. So it's easy to get caught up in the, the, the fantasy version of what it looks like to be an ally. It's easy to get caught up in this imagined version of a black woman needing the help of a white woman yes. and and we can't we can't do it on our own and we're so indebted to right. you for helping us and that's that's a that's an easy story to to get people feeling good fired up and not confronting the truth about this the situation in a nutshell that's what it is an easy feel-good story and probably why me as a white person and my mom at the time were like oh that was that was great look how far we've come and not true. And we and we watch that with no depth of those black women's stories in their own words and their own story. And that movie, that the book, The Help, was written by a white woman, and the movie was directed by a white man. So we do not have black people telling their story in their own words and voices. And that's the start of the problem with it. Marcy, do you want to dive in a little bit more, and then Tasha, we can give yeah, you. I, w- I just wanted to say, and the problem is, as Roxane Gay says, there's nothing wrong with the movie in and of itself. It's an excellent film, like in and of itself. But the problem is our history, and that we do this in history. And when we think about things like Uncle Tom's Cabin, that a white woman wrote about slavery because she wanted to do something that was anti-slavery, but she had no real understanding of Blackness or real appreciation of Black people or Black culture. She assumed that it was this one narrative. And we have that still happen happening with a lot of Black stories, that there's one narrative. And when we see a Medea, I think that it's indicative of how comfort, comfortable we've become with that particular skin on a Black woman, even if it's a man playing that role. The only difference with it is that it is a it's a black film and who's making it and who and the other characters in it and that it's not the one character. There's also the angry black woman always in that movie. There's also mm-hmm. always the the sexually um, adventurous black woman also in that movie. There's always the abandoned black child in that movie. You know, so I think. Um, the problem is that because we don't have different stories in our history, we actually don't have different stories on the screen. And until we start to look for different stories in our history that tell about a whole being instead of just a half, right? That tells the story of love and loss and community and all these other things. Because when you're a Black person in America, you're more than just a Black person in America. You're whatever else you are, too. You're a daughter, you're a mother, you're a lover of whatever the things are that you love, you're whatever job that you have put your energy towards. So you're, you're a bunch of different other things. And you're also your hurts and your desires. But so often, um, the movies that we get are focused on a false understanding of our desire to be free. And we don't get to see those women be free except when they're beside a white woman in the house. Because the white woman who wrote that book didn't get to see a black woman on a Sunday at home with her family. Or didn't get to see a black woman just going to town to go shop. Or just going to a black owned place which existed back then. Because it had to because they weren't allowed to go to the white places. So there's none of that that's in view of her. So her understanding is that outside of a white gaze, life for Black people stopped. It's just sadness and loneliness in a tiny little cabin. And that was that was my big problem with it. I was really ticked off that in the movie, all of the, the Black women's homes were so dowdy. I'm just like, hold up now. I grew up with grandmothers and aunties who knew how to make some drapes that looked like they came from, because they were the drapes that, they were the ones making those drapes that were being right. sold in the custom places. 
They knew how to put a home together. I've never been in a Black woman's home that was so lacking of color and so lacking of life. And I just was like, I mean, and I've been in, I'm talking about from the projects to where I live now in Hyde Park, these big mansions over here where the Obamas have a home. So like across the socioeconomic board, we have known how to make a home. And I just thought it's very interesting that the director and the set design actually thought that they didn't know how to make their own home. That the only time that there was color and life were in those living rooms of white oppression. Yeah. But that oppression continued because it was as if, if there's no whiteness there, there's no color. And it, and it really was irritating to me. And in the mm-hmm. same way we see in these cookbooks that even when a Black woman is giving her recipe to a white woman who's going to write it down and make money off of it. The black, the white woman's taking her dialect and making it more exaggerated because that's how she imagines it to be. And I was actually having this conversation with my husband. I'm like, I, I've never understood that in movies when all of a sudden the slave comes into the room and they can't put a sentence together. And I'm just like, but they are constantly around white people who are communicating to them. So how is it possible that they can't speak like the lowest brow overseer who probably is an uneducated white person? Why is his dialect suddenly this higher caste dialect when they are of the same caste, you know? It's just the right. color difference. But right. it's to reiterate the story. It's it's to make it that, no, this is a lesson. You need to know that now that this person is on the screen, they are a lesser human being. And that's mm-hmm. problematic. You need to know that now that I'm writing in this dialect of my maid who has given me this recipe that she's lesser. So it's okay that I take her recipe and I make money off of it. And we do this now, anytime that we we see Michelle Obama fist pump, and suddenly that that's that same, like, oh, well, she's of a lower cash, she fist pump. <laughs> um, or I love it when Kamala Harris, when she reads someone on the Senate, there's nothing better. And she is clear and she's very centered in her being, right? You know that that's an educated woman, but you'll have someone say, oh, she She's not as articulate or it just is so troubling that we have a hard time with how we characterize dialect. And I'm like, you cannot tell me that you think that what Pamela said was somehow not articulate, but Lindsey Graham is articulate. Yeah, just mic, mic drop. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Marcy. So much there and so true. And when you're saying all that, going back to the first part of what you said, I think of your quote, Patricia, of unless you're Black in America, you have no idea what it's like to be in America. So that's through all of time in this country. Black people's stories being told from the perspective of white people is just wrong. And that is how our history is so messed up. These movies are, it's white people's idea of the box that Black people fit in. And it's right. its almost like it's portrayed when I go back and think about the help and other images of this mammy and the maids that serve these white women. Like the white people are portraying them like it was a privilege like to be in our house like this was a luxury for them to get to service like you said mercy their whole home after that was like just so neglected like they lived in just awful conditions and coming into the white home was just a privilege um tasha what about you with them yeah so kind of piggybacking off of what marcy just said you know they 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 show these homes that are not, I mean, they, they weren't totally deplorable, but they were definitely in, in poor condition. And in Arkansas, where I'm originally from, we call that piecemeal. And they, they had some piecemeal homes. <laughs> and so, so, so yeah. And, and it's not lost on any of us that the degradation and the oppression of, of Black bodies, Black people, it's profitable for them to continue to tell that story. They're going to weave a beautiful story of how they degrade us, how they oppress us, and then how they come in, swoop in and save us. And then also along with that, some of our stories will be 
that, but we were happy. We were happy slaves. We were happy housekeepers. We were happy servants. You know, when we, when we breastfed their children, when we fed them, when we potty trained their children, when we did all the things for the family, but we were happy and we were taken care of and we had our needs. So yeah. that is the danger of other people telling Black stories. Yeah, that's, and I think of like your story, Tasha, is we won't spend a ton of time on this, but just what you, you're the polar opposite of the stereotype. I mean, you've served in the military you are a very educated therapist. I mean, coming out of that stereotype to when those are the stories that we need to hear and celebrate of these Black women, not in just today's times, but throughout history. And yeah, that's it, what I think. Yeah, go ahead. It makes me, just having this conversation, I said, you know what? I'm going to get busy on Hulu and Amazon and Netflix and try to find positive Black stories where there absolutely is no white savior. And also, if I can, try to find positive Black stories where there is not um, an overindulgence into the, like the, the trauma narrative, basically. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And I don't know how successful I will be with all of that, but that's what I want for myself and my family this month is to immerse ourselves in, in positive Black stories. So thank you for that, Andrea. Well, that's a really good point with the trauma narrative, because I think that's the other big Mm -hmm. This goes off topic a little bit, but like, that's what is so put out there during this month or black movies. If we get, we go the other direction of like, oh, it was just horrible and awful and not celebrating. And again, why we're trying to focus on the celebrating and not, not that trauma narrative, like you just said. So thank you for bringing that up. Talking about celebrating Black women, let's talk about real quick before we go into that, speaking of movies, is there any that you would recommend? Because I know this is going to be a challenge for our listeners, Marcy. What what do you recommend besides the help? The challenge is, I think what Tasha said, the, the challenge is how do you find a, a Black movies that center Blackness without trauma? I'm finding that mostly in the millennials. They're making these shows and movies that are super basic life. Um, so you have people like Issa Rae making these very basic movies about a Black young woman trying to get her career started. And the narrative isn't about her facing racism as it is just her daily day microaggressions. The problem is with a lot of the shows that I find that I would love for white, especially a white Christian audience to embrace is that if it's not made by a Christian person or a person who has the message in it, they won't watch it. <laughs> so it's right. really difficult or they're turned off by the language or they'll say, oh, there's a sex scene in it. I can't watch that. Or right. and it really irritates me because I'm like, but I know you watch Game of Thrones. You don't hold that person to a certain standard standard of Christianity. You understand that that person's not a Christian, so why would why do they need to right. uphold your standards? I haven't seen it yet, but there are a few movies. I haven't seen Sylvie yet, which is about a Black love story. And I hear that there's it's on Prime and there's no narrative that is about trauma. It's just about this woman and this man having uh, falling in love. Two, uh, two Black people fall in love. How about that? <laughs> um, and then you have like Pixar's Soul, which was beautifully done. Do you have any recommendations for movies, Patricia, that you would think like, yeah, this is a, a good one to watch? Uh, you know, it made me sad because it was hard to think of one immediately without something attached to it. Mm -hmm. um, actually, there's a list that that I saw passed around several times this week for Black History Month. And they're like, oh, you know, 28 non-traumatic movies to watch for Black History Month. And I would dispute some of those. You know, mm -hmm. I would dispute quite a few of those because they're, I think that trauma is equated to just, as long as it's not a movie about slavery, and then, then you should right. be able to watch it but no like there <laughs> remember the titans which is a movie i love but that is traumatic you know like yeah. there's so many racial implications um in in lots of the movies that they listed so i had one thought um for sure which was jingle jangle because <laughs> that was me and my yes. girls like that was our jam and i don't care if it's chris's movie we could watch that all year round <laughs> um yeah. And then even though I haven't watched the series, The Watchmen, I love Regina King. I feel like she can do no wrong. And 
I've heard great things about that series. And she also just produced one night in Miami, um, which again, is not an easy movie, you know, it's based on, on the, the play, but yeah, it was, it was difficult to find one that did not have a traumatic theme, but I would say Jingle Jangle and Regina King really is a phenomenal actress. I love the movies where a black person took a role that wasn't, that was made for a white person. That's good. That's a really good way of seeing blackness centered in a different way mm-hmm. um, where, where you are forced to see black people in a normal, um, normative society without a stereotype placed upon them. So um, I'm thinking of Oh, I want to say there's a bunch of Whoopi Goldberg movies that weren't written for her, um, that she insisted on playing, that she made her agent ask for the, what do you call it, audition. Mm-hmm. Ones, but there, there are a handful that she did that she was not the person that they had in mind to play the role. Often they'll have a person who's not Black, like Black Panther, who, who's not African-American, play the role. They'll have someone who's English or from um, Africa play the role. And and a lot of African-American artists have feel something about that because they've been here in, here in the States for the longest yeah. trying to get these roles. And then someone from another country swoops in and takes the role. Right. There's a reason behind it because it often happens with a white director or producer because they're more comfortable with that narrative because they don't have to deal with the race situation. When they put a British person in the role of Harriet Tubman, and I love the movie Harriet Tubman, and I love that actress. The problem is they don't have that tension that they would have if an African-American woman yeah, playing the role point. of Harriet Tubman. Right. That's a good point. They don't have to be, they don't have to worry about their own fragility. I'm going to name of it. I'll find it. We watched it. It's, it's a wonderful uh, documentary where they actually talk to these actors and actresses who um, are talking about this problem of race when casting, because if it's a white director, that's part of the problem. And I was also going to say, and I know we're not going to stay on movies, is that I would recommend that instead of watching a movie about black domestics i love to do this thing where if i'm thinking about something and i'm only seeing it in one way in hollywood or in literature i'll just put it in my search engine plus civil rights and so usually i end up getting really good stories which is how i found out about georgia gilmore i put black maids and civil rights and i put black cooks and civil rights movement and she came up and i had never heard her story she was a was a cook she was a pretty boisterous person she wanted to do something and she lived not far from dr king so he was bothering him actually about what can i do what can i what can I do. And she started making meals for the people who were protested, the, the boycott of the buses. And Dr. King started bringing people that he was entertaining to her home for a meal. Like white folks, he was entertaining. Yeah. He brings it her. But she raised money. She sold baked goods. She sold meals. And she raised money. And she testified on his behalf when he went yes. for the Montgomery bus cop. But we don't hear very much about her story. There's a little snippet of her in the movie Selma. In the very beginning, he goes to Selma and it's supposed to be her, but not her because I, I think the location is different. But he's in someone's kitchen and she's cooking for him, right? That's how I found most of the, the great stories that I found. Right. And so that's a good point that we have to dig deeper. Like if we're just looking like what's out there on mainstream media, probably we're not going to come across these hidden stories. And So if we're talking about celebrating Black women, getting them out of those boxes, she had a huge role in the Alabama bus boycott. And what she did going back to being a cook in her kitchen, making money, you you shared a little bit, Marcy, but I think it's worth highlighting on just the importance of her role and testifying. And again, an overlooked Black woman that was a cook, that was a domestic, how she used that, that box that she was put in, how she used that. 
that to make such a huge difference. Yeah, and you know, her story really reminds me of what happened in Georgia with Stacey Abrams. I think that people really underestimated what these maids could do if they lost their jobs. So she started working on the bus boycott. She was working as a caterer or something like that for a company. She lost her job because they found out that she was helping with the movement. To me, it reminds me a lot of Stacey Abrams in the sense that she lost the election, right? And the next thing we knew, she shows up and she's she's going to um, be the president. She's she's um, campaigning for the presidency, a presidential nomination, and then she drops out. And we're all like, why would she drop out? Well, none of us knew. I'm sure plenty of us knew, but the world stopped looking at Stacey Abrams and Stacey Abrams was working. Such a big upset that, you know, we have an ex-president whose head is still reeling about that. But when people say like, it goes back to the whole black women saved America, I'm just like, black women have been doing this sort of thing always. And we talked about Rosa Parks yesterday. I posted about Rosa Parks. It was her, her birthday on the 4th. And the thing of it was, is that you have to remember she was preparing for the moment. Georgia Gilmore was preparing for the moment. She was making these meals. She didn't know how she was going, how essential it was going to be, but she knew that Dr. King was out onto something and she wanted to be a part of it. And so she did what she could until she got to have her say in that courtroom. Now she couldn't have called that she was going to have that her say this day where she was going to have to go to court and testify and be able to tell what it was like. So she testified about what it was like. And you have people like that, like Fanny Lou Hammer, same thing. These are women that they were living their lives rather quietly out of public view, but they were always engaged in this work. Rosa Parks was always engaged in this work, but she was a seamstress. And the thing also is that we have to remember that when these women spoke out, they suffered after that. Rosa Parks lost her job. Her husband had a hard time getting a job after that. So these domestic women suddenly weren't welcomed into home. Georgia Gilmore lost her job as a cook. And so she started a restaurant in her home. That's how she survived. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember who told her the idea, but was someone big told her, well, why don't you- I think it was Martin Luther King Martin told her. King. Yes, because she test, right. When she testified in court, she said to the judge, when I paid my fare and they got the money, they didn't know Negro money from white money. And so that is what really, that's what got her fired, right. but also made her just like a hero to the local black people. And then Martin Luther King said, you need to just start in your own home, a restaurant. I mean, it's fascinating. Why don't we hear that story? When you hear all this, Tasha, what do you think as yeah, a black woman you guys, is accomplished? Yeah, when I hear you guys talking, you know, and just thinking about again, Black stories and how they are changed and, and edited to fit <laughs> mainstream mm -hmm. society. Mm -hmm. I just thought, you know, one of the ways that we'll know that that racism is is diminishing, if that's even possible, is when real, when our stories, Black people's stories and, and people of color, but Black people, when our stories are told in truth and with compassion and it's, there's no motive behind it, no motive to protect other people. Mm -hmm. So that's when we'll know that racism is, is is diminished and we'll see that change in our schools. We'll see that change in, in the movies. We'll see that change in book and anywhere where anybody is telling the story of a single black person or a group of black people. That's so good. And what'd you say, Marcy? I'm sorry. More of individual stories, you know, mm -hmm. I guess. Like she said, it won't be mm -hmm. just a story about black people. It'll be a story about this woman and that man and this That's child, good. this person. Instead of, you know, this is this is the story about Black maids, Black civil rights people. This is the Black story, yeah. Black superheroes. It'll be so much more stories, so much individual narrative. I want to move on to one other person's story, but before I do, I just want to kind of piggyback on the story with the Alabama bus boycott. We talked about Georgia Gilmore, but then as a whole, the domestics at that time were a huge reason that that was successful because... The domestic workers at that time, those women, those Black women, were a huge part of who rode the buses, but they all gathered and they walked to their jobs every day. I mean, they were the largest group of women that had to walk and go to a farther away destination. And they walked and they joined forces and they're hugely responsible for the success of the bus boycott. So I think that's something that has not been looked at 
like it should be and a story that hasn't been told. And so like you go back to the help and that's the story that should have been told what was really going on in these women's lives and what they were accomplishing. Right. Let's talk a little bit, Black women telling their own stories through their voices, their narrative. Idella Parker is an example of that and a woman that should be celebrated who wrote her own book. So do you want to just tell a little bit about her story and celebrating her? Okay, so we have real stories that people can find, which makes the work of the Jemima Code so much more important, what Tony Tipton Martin did here. She found stories that have been buried and um, that weren't centered. So Idella Parker worked for a famous, I think she was a famous poet, and she was her 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 girl, her maid, for, I think the woman's name is Marjorie Rawlings. And she was her maid off and on for a number of years. Mm-hmm. When Marjorie Rawlings wrote a book about homekeeping and domesticity, um, she dedicated it to Idella Parker, and she called her the perfect maid. And Idella was like, first of all, no, I was not your perfect maid. And you were not the perfect employee. You weren't perfect either. And she wrote her own book about what years of service to this woman was like. And she called it Idella Margie Rawlings' perfect maid. I mean, she just... She did. Like, that was a bold move for her to just come out and be like, "Here's here's some truth behind what really went on. This is the truth. She wasn't perfect. I wasn't perfect. And I'm not down for this narrative. And that's a lot of the Anne Jemima narrative is that everything was perfect. The home was perfect. The family within the home, the white home was perfect. The relationship between them, between them was almost like sisterhood or it was like friendship or, and the thing of it is, is we all have heard this, the thing of no woman should allow another woman to cook in her kitchen or live under Mm -hmm. her. That's just troubling for a marriage, which is, you know, crazy stereotype which I don't really like because it's negative towards women's and women's like mm-hmm. we control our feelings but there's a little truth in it in the sense that the more people in any home any gender doesn't matter the more complications you know right of course it wouldn't have been perfect because you you're adding another human dynamic to your home life and so she wrote a book about what that experience was like and how at times they got along well and at times they didn't get along well. But I think the thing that's even more important is she she was like, I am not your mate. The picture that she put on the cover is of her in her Sunday best. I'm not just a maid. I am a whole bunch of other things. So she writes about what her life was like outside of this woman's home. Right. Who obviously didn't want to (laughs) know, you know? These Black women had important lives outside of this. It was not centered. Their whole life was not centered on being, quote, part of these white people's family as the white people like to think. And I think another complex issue we're talking about in that book and that I shares openly is the, quote, friendship they had, like sisters, but... How is that really even possible when the racist lines were drawn so deeply? Right. So it's like Rawlings really thought like we're friends, we're sisters, but, but really? So I don't know. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Cause I think that's worth exploring too. And with Idella setting the record straight kind of with that. Yeah. And I think the the thing that you need to set straight, the, the thing that sets it straight, if you're wondering if you have a true friendship with, a black woman who's in your life. Well, first of all, if she's not in your, you don't have her phone number. She's probably in just someone you're acquainted with. Mm-hmm. And you can't go around saying, but I have a black friend. No, right. that's you having a black coworker. And that has nothing to do with your choice. That someone hired someone who happens to be on the same team is not a choice that you've made. Right. That's, a, that's a circumstance that has come to you, right? So do not claim your Black coworkers as your friend if you've never had a meal with them. And mm-hmm. especially if they've never been interested in having a meal with you. Right, right. Um, if you don't know their children's names, right. you don't know their spouses' names, you don't know their um, 
You don't know if they're married or not married. You don't know their, right. their, their circumstances at all. To be a friend to someone is to know them. Like if you, if you think, when you think of, okay, I'm gonna put a girl's afternoon together, a girl's lunch, or I'm gonna, we're gonna do a girl's night. And that black person doesn't come to mind to invite out of a sincere desire to spend time with them, not to color code your event. That's not a black friend. And that's what Idella was saying. Like, I'm here because I'm paid to be here. And if I weren't paid to be here and I could be someplace else, remember, black women in the South, Jim Crow, didn't have a lot of options. There were only certain right. legally that's that right. could work. She was where she could be. Yeah. And it's like Rawlings really did try to go out of her way to act like I'm like this great white woman. Look at me. Like one instance, like letting, oh, Idella in the movie theater. Like, then we have an example. I was just reading. Idella had Zora Neale Hurston come, which was a, had her over to her house for dinner, but then made her sleep in the maid quarters. Yeah. So it's like there is it ran the racism ran so deep and for Idella to come out Idella Parker to come out and write about the truth was really bold during her time and that she should be celebrated because of that for being a truth teller honest and she wrote a book I mean she was an educated woman she had worked as a teacher before right right so you also have to remember you brought you brought so many good points her story is so fascinating first of all Zora Neale Hurston um was the black female writer of the Harlem Renaissance. There were many. To have her come to your home and then to put her in the maid's quarters. But here's the problem with the story. And here's the problem with racism. It's something that James Baldwin talks about is that it is something that deteriorates our humanity for white people, for anyone who has to play a part in it. And it was very much against the law for a white person to treat a black person as an equal was against the law. Like your maid servant had to come to the back door. That was the law. That wasn't the custom. That was the law. And so what then you had is you had a bunch of gatekeepers on the block making sure that you were following the rules, right? So making sure you're following the rules. And there are stories of white people in situations when they wanted to help, but they knew that if they did the thing that they wanted to do, their humanity called them to do, that there would be a price to pay. And so rather than pay that price, they were complicit. And that was the problem. And then when they did do the major thing it usually was a very public thing like you said so publicly because all these people are watching he suddenly has this big bold moment to let idella into the movie theater the problem with that is that idella had to pay for that later yeah and idella says she was scared the whole time so it's like she's not helping the situation Mm so my advice to white allyship right now in this current time is that as much as you want to have the big Hollywood moment, that is Hollywood. And you have to trust. I think the best thing that a white ally can do is trust and believe that Black people are wise enough, capable enough of taking the lead in their own story. And you, so good. you don't need to insert and do. You can simply wait to be asked. Mm. And because we will ask. And I think, and you can you can support in other ways. You can support, if you're ever wondering, well, what can I do to help? Well, usually there's something that that person is already doing that you can right. financially support. And if you can't financially support it, you can just verbally support it. I mean, right. I love it when people give me messages about what it means to them, something that I've posted or a lesson that I've written. That means almost more than the actual paying for the work yeah. because it tells me that the work is actually working and meaning, which is why I love Rebecca West's story. And that's a great segue, Marcy. So tell us a little bit about Rebecca West. So Rebecca West was of maid and her employer helped her to write a cookbook. But what she did, which was so unusual, is she didn't take the credit for the recipe. She actually shared the byline 
with Rebecca West. And that seems like such a small thing, but it's a really powerful moment that she signed her name beside Rebecca West. Let's be very honest, these are her recipes. I'm just writing them down for her. Yeah, and so that cookbook was in 1942. And the Jemima Code, the book, we, highlights that and that story. And like you said, we take that for granted, but that was a huge thing then, that this white lady just took the little byline and let this black woman, and like you said, how can white people help this as a way? Minimize yourself, give credit yeah. to, to the black woman. Talk a little bit about her specific cookbook, her recipes. Like, it's just really oh. impressive. So uh, the thing that I love about her story is that I think she was one of those rare people that it just so happened that all she could do at legally was to be a domestic, but probably would have been a cook anyway. Like I truly really believe that this was her gifting and yeah. the way that she talks about her stories and the way that she talks about cooking. And when we talk about her cookbook, we're not talking about biscuits and gravy and Southern fried chicken. She's making things like stuffed baked black bass, scalloped oysters. She's telling these funny stories about how she figured out how to make them. Like there's one story where she figured out how to make, if you go to Tony Tipton Martin's website, the Jemima code, these stories are there. So you can- I'll link this one up. Cause this one in particular, she goes into, if you want to just share an overview of it, cause it's worth telling. Another employee, comes into her room and says, hey, the missus wants you to learn how to make this fish dish and you better learn how to make it. I don't know what you're going to do or how you're going to do it. Well, Rebecca actually, Miss West knew the, the cook of that particular fancy hotel because it was a black, a black cook. And so she asked, can you give me the recipe? And she gets the recipe. It wasn't fish. It was ham or something. Yeah, something crazy. Yes. And she's like, well, what kind of fish was it? And, you know, like the employee's like, I don't know, but she really wants you to figure out what this fish dish was. But then she did make a really good fish dish too. And the rest- Yeah, I mean, she came up with a brilliant recipe, figured it out. She didn't have a cookbook to go and look at or eat. I mean, she came up with this recipe for the- Red snapper and that was that rivals with yeah. current day highly trained successful chefs and it should not be overlooked and it, it's really incredible. Complex cooking, like the kind of cooking that you don't do at home, a lot of us. This is what we go out to a fine dining establishment to have. So she yeah. was making these meals and her and and thank goodness her employer thought someone needs to know about her. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think her face is on her cook. She put her on the on the cookbook, but she didn't mammy her up. I think the thing that we have to also realize is that a lot of these women had to swallow so much of their dignity to do the work that they did. For one, they're addressing children um, with honorifics, like this is Miss Chelsea and, and yes. Sir Peter or whatever it is. And they're being called mammy or girl or you know whatever the child wanted to call them really. And then we also have to remember that, you know, a lot of these women are being sexually assaulted yes. and humiliated by um, the teenage boys in the home, by gentlemen who came to visit the house, and also by the man of the house. And yeah. so we have that narrative being a common narrative. And it's one of, yeah. it's one of the part of Rosa Parks' own story was, you know, she had to fight off her boss when she was a maid for a family, a white, like she was really young. She just graduated high school, I think. So I think we have to remember that these women were, were it was a mental, the, the mental task of it was just ruling as the physical work that they were doing. There's this mental gymnastics that they have to do in order to adapt to the home and to remember all the rules and to not lose it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Job. Um, and they needed the reference. And that was the other way that these white women kept these kept the maids in check. They knew that these women needed their reference. Mm-hmm. And so whatever the woman said trumped anything that anyone else knew of, of the employees. That was the thing that was kind of another false narrative in the help is that when the scene when Viola, Viola Davis just quits, it's like, well, where else would she work? 
she yeah. she's sitting working for one of the queen bees of that whole community and left to migrates north which is what what happened a lot the book the warmth of other sons a lot of what happened is that there would be a dispute on the job and that family would know well now we right. just got to move because we can't get work here anymore because yeah. we popped back or you you didn't let your daughter go sleep with the boss so we have all these control systems in place in this particular domestic work so there was all these, these gatekeepers keeping all the women and men who were working in these homes in line making it so that they had no choice there's this quote and I, I cannot find it. I read it in an article and I thought it was one of the articles that you sent me, but what okay. I find it one day, I look for it every now and again, um, about domestics. The white women were really worried in the South about Jim Crow ending in the same way that white people were, re were really worried about slavery ending because what they thought was, well, now there's more of them than there are of us. And in a lot of towns, that was the truth. What are they going to do? Like, are they going to retaliate? Are they going to take over? But that was what was happening with slavery. Are they going to revolt? I mean, I'm sure they were thinking, well, I would if somebody <laughs> treated me this way, I would get together and handle things. But that's not what happened. What ended up happening in Reconstruction was that a lot of soldiers who have fought and won the war, right, as a Union soldier who came back to the South to their family as free men, right, after Emancipation Proclamation. Well, actually, after, after the Emancipation yes. with the 16th Amendment. A lot of them came back and wanted to hold government office. They wanted to do more for the communities. They wanted to have homes and businesses. There was no thought of them wanting to go burn it all down. It had been burned down. They had been through years and years of war. Nobody wanted to see more destruction, especially Black people who were feeling it harder, as with everything in America, feeling it harder than any other group. So they didn't want that. But then when Jim Crow laws were being challenged with school integration, um, and Brown versus the Board of Education, white women were saying things like, well, who's going to clean our homes? And well, who's going to do the work? How are they going to get a job? Will the adults want to go to school too? You have people like Booker T. Washington who went around training rural Black folk around the time of Reconstruction and starting schools like the Tuskegee Institute, which still was going, and a lot of Black colleges like the one that, and, and high schools like the one that Rosa Parks went to, were training women and men to go out and do in, industrial work. And that was the big worry, was that they would take the factory jobs from white men. So if we yeah. keep domestics, we can keep the wealth, but then our families. And domestics didn't get health insurance or they they weren't eligible for much of the government, any of the government funding that was for em employees. Like they, they didn't get social security. They didn't get any of that that was created during the New, the new Deal did not include domestics. I mean, well, when you look at it, I never thought about that. Like their jobs and roles were probably up there with some of the hardest in the country and a lot because of the psychological, but also because of they were, how they were treated, the low wages. I mean, during Jim Crow, I, I'm guessing black people are probably trying to avoid white people and dealing with that. But then these domestics had to go every day, be in their family, be with their families in those houses and they couldn't avoid it. Go into those grocery stores. Yes. Yeah. And if you think about, so the, the black women that were taking care of the white children, they weren't allowed, you know, we know in the bus seats or at certain parks or bathrooms, but they would take these children to the white parks. Like they were allowed in these spaces when they had the white children with them and the psychological. In their uniforms. Yes. So the demoralizing. Yeah. Yeah. And then you talking about like it was against the law for them to come in the front door. They had to use the back door. And one memoir I was reading talked about, gosh, I can't remember. It was one of these women, but she couldn't wash her hands in the bathroom sink. So she yeah. just didn't before she went in and made, made dinner. It's like the irony, like clearly white people are just trying. They're scared. They're trying to keep them somehow in where they think their places are. And so the, the silliness of 
the laws and the rules. Like you can't wash your hands in my sink, but come in and make my dinner with your unwashed hands. And it's just, there's so much here, Marcy. So let's move on. The last person I want to move on to, to highlight, because that goes along with our challenge with the biscuits, is the Emma Jane's biscuits. Yeah. So Emma Jane was a cook who wrote a cookbook for, it was for white brides, basically. It was a cookbook that would be given to to a white bride because you have to remember it's that these girls are growing up in homes where they've they've never cooked because you know they they've never had to there's this cookbook called souvenir cookbook with the intention of this is the cookbook that you give your daughter who's now going home and you know what really happened is that that daughter probably then gave that cookbook to her domestic and said Uh uh i want you to make but if you go to the website it would just be fun to actually make emma james biscuits buttermilk biscuits to read her story especially if you have children to read her story and to make the biscuit to talk about all the domestics that we've talked about with your kids i think it's important that kids know that rosa parks was a domestic she was a seamstress she worked in homes i think the thing that i love so much about these stories is that these women had so little these women and men who were also domestics but were focusing on women had so very little and yet they put kids through college they made sure that the next generation had a different plan than they had they made businesses out of the one thing that they were allowed to do. So we have Emma Jane and she makes, writes a cookbook along with her name is on the cookbook, which is yes. something that Tony Tipton Martin loved looking for books that actually credited the cook. There are stories of hers written throughout the cookbook. So, and you can read it if you go online, but I think that's important that our kids know that these women were very industrious with the very little that they were given in life, the very little role that were they were given not a whole lot of voice to do major major things but they did and we also have to remember that when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, he wasn't the only one doing that during that time. Yeah. There were lots of, we have Claudette Colvin, but there were other before, yeah. who were having moments on the bus. So that was a tension place at the time because the maids relied so heavily on them to get to these white communities. Mm-hmm. Then to be told that you have to move to the back when all day you've been following their underwear, cooking their meals, cleaning their toilets, washing your glasses. It's just absolutely insane. Insane. It, it is. And when you think back, like we said, with this, the challenge to make these biscuits and we'll make sure that that link is there. And we think, I know we were talking about this initially with the series. Biscuits seem so simple. But when you look at like, they didn't have a recipe. Emma Jane did not have a a recipe to look at and to come up. She created this and it ended up being a fabulous biscuit. So making that is significant. And then in our book, Jubilee, if people buy it, there's a whole section on breads and biscuits. And that's fascinating to read too, kind of just the history of that and the women. We're looking at page 82. One of the memoirs, one of the Black women was an excellent baker, so highly esteemed that she could charge 25 cents a loaf when the going rate for bread was a nickel. So it's like how industrious with the limited and how talented is just so remarkable. Lucy Bishop is somebody else. I noted a home economist, entrepreneur, author, and she developed and sold the first package of hot roll mix. You know, we think of Bisquick. Black women had discovered and came up with this long before and didn't get the credit. Before and they didn't get the credit. And she was also doing pizza crust. She was doing so much more than just biscuits. There are lots of stories about Black women taking what they were learning in the kitchen on their feet and by the moment, and they took it and they made that into a business. And they found freedom within that business. And because white people knew who had the best whatever, which household had the best, you know, hot rolls or whatever it was, mm-hmm. they were willing to pay and to go to those bakeries and get that product. And I just, to challenge listeners again, I know that you're going to be like, biscuits so fattening, but you don't say that about croissant, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Up for gelato. Make sure that if you are colonizing this, or if it feels like you're something in you is just like, oh, I can't make that. Just ask yourself, is this truly about health concerns? Like I'm allergic to gluten, have high cholesterol. I really can't 
eat these things, then of course, take care of yourself. Find a different biscuit recipe that works for your dietary needs. But if you don't have that, I know I saw a lot of people posting about the sourdough bread they were making during the pandemic. So challenge yourself to enjoy it, not rate it or colonize it, really. That's so good. Marcy, I know me and you could keep talking about all of this, but we probably have to wrap up. Together all day long. (laughs) (laughs) We probably could. Tell me what else you learned. So I hope my listeners are buying the book Jubilee because... We're just very lightly touching on the subject. Jemima Code 2, add it to your list. It's just a harder one to get and you might have to wait a little bit, but it's definitely worth adding to your collection and to dive into these stories that women that are overlooked. Go to the website. So That's much. right. That's right. And we'll make sure we link that up again because you can dive in and find so much information there. Marcy, is there anything else you want to add as we wrap up today? Um, no, just, just try to have joy in the kitchen and just, I'll, I'll just end with just one little thing. One of my favorite stories that I've learned during this time was that Rosa Parks, one of her favorite memories is one of having a meal prepared for her mm-hmm. and it was prepared by white hands and it was the smell of baking and coffee. And she talks about that in her memoir, how um, in her autobiography, how special that was to us. So I just hope that people, I know food is a sticky thing for a lot of us in this particular American culture for women. I just want women to nourish themselves in one real true way this month in honor of these cooks and the legacy that they left behind just to allow yourself to enjoy that part of the narrative. We eat Black pain pretty much on a regular basis, but we don't often eat Black joy Mm. and indulge on it. And I I hope people will do that. And joy joy is resistance and joy is healing. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Okay. We will end on that note, Marcy. Thank you so much again for joining me this week and all your work and your posts on Instagram. People follow you, need to follow you if they don't because you're posting other stories and images and graphics to go along with our conversation. So thank you, Marcy. Oh, thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm back. (laughs) This is Patricia Taylor. And unfortunately, due to some technological issues, yay technology, uh, I was not able to stay on the call for the entire time. But what a great episode it was, wasn't it? I look forward to being back with the next week's episode. And let's all pray together that (laughs) everything is working for everyone. Yay! (laughs) But before I go, Andrea was so gracious to have me come on and share something that's near and dear to my heart. I have shared before that I am the BIPOC educator with Be The Bridge and we have a workshop coming up and we're teaming up with Preemptive Love and I wanted to give you details because I think it's going to be fantastic. So we are going to be offering a four-week anti-racism workshop where you will learn how to engage in real racial reconciliation define race, ethnicity, racial reconciliation, and white fragility. You'll understand your unconscious and implicit bias, and you'll have some tools and some action items that will help you advocate for racial justice where you live. I want to encourage you to register now because we are going to be exploring the history and the impact of racism in the U.S., how we can pursue racial equity and justice together. And the seats or the slots are limited, so we definitely don't want you to miss it. I'm encouraged to be able to be a part of this. I will be uh, one of the teachers. And so if you do sign up, you'll get to uh, hopefully learn some things from the session I'll be teaching, which is on understanding your unconscious and implicit bias. So please make sure that you go to the link that I believe Andrew is going to share for us. You can also text the word together to 70353 to register as well. And I will say one last thing, 100% of the proceeds goes to Be The Bridge. And so your giving will be so helpful for our organization and you'll get some learning done too. So we'll see you there.